Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jay. I invite you to open your Bibles. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're in a sermon series entitled Popular Deceptions in Our Day. And this weekend, we're going to take on one of the most common accusations leveled against the God of the Bible. This one comes up all the time. You may have said it. If not, you have heard it probably on multiple occasions. And here it is in a nutshell. Why does the God of the New Testament seem so loving and forgiving and grace-filled, but in the Old Testament seems so angry, harsh, vengeful, and vindictive? In effect, the accusation that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive bully. Familiar with that? Have you ever said that, thought that, heard that? Nobody has put this into words better, probably, then the world's foremost atheist, Richard Dawkins, retired professor at Oxford, in his best-selling book several years ago, The God Delusion, which is a fascinating book to read. But this is his summary of the God of the Old Testament, and he has a way with words. And this is what he believes. Quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleansing, homophobic, racist, genocidal, malevolent bully. Close quote. That's on page 31 if you'd like to read it. By the way, this is not a new accusation against God. This has come up over the centuries. One of the earliest proponents of this was one of the very early church fathers deemed a heretic, Marcion, who lived in what is today Turkey, who argued that there were actually two different gods, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, and the one was mean, nasty, and cruel, and the other one was grace-filled and loving. Problem is, it stands in direct contradiction to what is revealed in the Bible. Passages like Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, or the verse emboldened up over Moody Memorial Church's organ about Jesus from Hebrews, I, the Lord, uh, Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever which is in sync with Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. You have this verse after verse after verse in the Bible of God's unchangeableness, that he is not a God who is one day this way and another day this way. And friends, here's the bottom line. Young people and kids especially want your attention. What you think about God is absolutely critical for a number of reasons. It affects everything and especially will determine your eternal destiny. Nobody's put this... I think any more crisply than A.W. Tozer, the great preacher who preached for 30 years in Chicago, has so many classics out. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he opens it by saying this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So it raises a question, and this is a question we're addressing this morning. Ready? Is the Bible's teaching about God somehow different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? And if not, why does it sometimes feel like that to people? To help answer the question, we are simply going to dive into the Bible. I hope you brought a Bible. We are a church that believes in having a Bible on our lap, either on a device or in paper, so that we can see what the text says. We need that so desperately. And so we're going to jump into the Old Testament, and here's my proposal this morning, here's my thesis, that the Old Testament isn't just a place where we find a few examples of God's patience and mercy. 
I want to argue this morning, and I'm going to prove, I think, my point, that the Old Testament actually is where we find the most incredible stories, abundant evidence of God's patience, mercy, and love, so much so I can't even begin to hit them all. And so this morning, we're just going to see some of the mountaintops. These are stories that ultimately point to the gospel. If you're not familiar with the gospel, it is the good news that there is a God, a real God in heaven, who is reconciling lost sinners to himself through the death of his son. Not everybody, we don't believe in universalism, and I know not everybody here knows Jesus, and not everyone here is forgiven. But if you know Christ, that is the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, the good news is God has made a way that you can be forgiven and reconciled to him through the atoning death of his son who paid the price for those who believe. So we're going to dive in. We're going to start in Genesis 2. Again, we're only going to hit a few of the highlights. If you have your outline in front of you, you may be thinking, holy cow, we're going to be here for two hours. We're not. Don't panic. Don't try this at home without a professional. But trust me, the, plan will, the plane will land on time, so fear not. Good flock. All right. First of all, I'm going to give you some of the most compelling evidence of God's mercy that I can find in the Old Testament. We're going to start in Genesis 2. God's incredible mercy on display in the opening chapters of the Bible when he takes the very first perfect couple and puts them in the very first perfect garden. And yes, we believe there was a perfect couple, the genetic, biological ancestors of every single human being, a real Adam, a real Eve who existed in real space and time, and that God put him in what is today probably a beautiful garden somewhere in the Middle East near Iraq called the Garden of Eden, the perfect couple in the perfect garden, and what happened. And he gives them full run of the garden except for one tree. I want to pick up the narrative in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. So this, this wasn't any ordinary garden. This thing is a botanical wonderland. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you drop down to verses 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For, and you can translate the next, it's actually a preface to a, a, a word, a prefix. So you can either translate it when or in or on, for on the day or when you do or in the day you eat from it, meaning the day, you will certainly die. There would be a cause and effect immediately. So that is the only prohibition put on this perfect couple in a perfect Garden of Eden. And yet what happens? This creature from the dirt chooses as one of his very first acts to disobey and defy the everlasting and holy God. And instead of killing him on that day, Adam and Eve, we hear and we read, live on for hundreds of more years and God even clothes them and in the midst of a curse that he does pronounce in chapter 3, a temporary curse on the earth, there is the very first promise of a coming Savior in verse 15. And so you have a story that on the face of it 
Yes, God warned them. Yes, he said there would be horrific consequences, but in the midst of judgment comes mercy, which is part of the story of the Bible and the promise of a coming Savior. God's tremendous mercy on Adam and Eve. They were not struck dead that day. And they were blessed beyond measure. And even in the midst of a curse comes a promise of a Savior. All right, Genesis 18. Let's move forward in biblical history. We're not exactly sure how far in terms of years. Genesis 18 and 19. Some of these stories I know some of you know well. Some of you have some familiarity. Some of you, this is brand new territory. I'll try to give the brief overview of each one. These are two cities that were on the... Uh, shore, basically the perimeter of the Dead Sea. And that's where the remnants are as far as we know today. So when you go along the Dead Sea today, there is where probably Sodom stood. Most archaeologists agree. Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are also told they are two of the most wicked, depraved, wretched cities there ever has been. And so these are some of the things that are cited by those who say the God of the Old Testament is this vindictive bully. They look at the raining of of fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and cite that as an example or some of the genocides that were commanded as the people went into the promised land or God just simply striking people dead in the Old Testament. These are the kind of things that come up over and over again when people bring out this accusation against this, you know, quote, horrible God of the Old Testament, this vindictive bully. So here is one of the classic examples Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, God reveals to Abraham he's going to destroy. In fact, he does this in chapter 18 and 19. His intention to destroy these two cities, very near the Dead Sea, for their extreme wickedness. Specifically, their homosexuality and their sexual perversion. And in chapter 19, verses 1 to 5, we pick it up. The two angels, so here's two angels... Tell me, this isn't cool. Two angels in human form come into the city. And they arrive in Sodom in the evening. And Lot is sitting at the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. This is classic Middle Eastern hospitality. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. So these are are city-states, city communities. So these aren't huge. It would have been well known if two strangers showed up, especially towards evening. They called, they all the men that surrounded Lot's house of the city called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Some translations translate it more literally so that we can know them. It's not necessarily a better translation. That is what it means, so we can have sex with them. Yada in Hebrew doesn't always mean sexual contact, but in the context, it is always clear when it does, and this is very clear what is going on here. This would have been homosexuality and even including rape. When you get to verses 12 and 13, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Like, hightail it. Because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to, Lord, to the Lord against its people is so great 
and he has sent us to destroy it. Now, it's interesting, and this is where the mercy part comes in, especially. If you go back to chapter 18, starting in verses 22 through 26, Abraham is told that God's going to destroy Sodom, and he pleads, prays to God, and asks him for mercy. Interesting how it comes about. Chapter 18, verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. These are the two angels. Abraham remained standing before Yahweh. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you uh, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So this is Abraham talking to God after God announces he's going to destroy these cities. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? So Abraham begins this negotiation process. What if we can just find 50 you know, decent people, would you spare the cities? Will you sweep it away and, and, and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? And amazingly, God agrees. Far, from it for you to do, to, uh, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Here we come to one of the greatest encouraging statements about God. Far be it from you will not the judge of all the earth do what is right. So Abraham keeps this plea up. And God agrees. And then he offers 45. And God says, okay, if I can find 45. And then Abraham keeps going. 40, 30, 20, 10. What if he finds just 10 people? Verse 32. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found here? And God answers. Listen to this mercy. In considering the wickedness of these cities, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. You know, it's sobering. As far as we know, Abraham never asked for anything less than that. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 1, God says, Jeremiah, speaking of the coming Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, God says, Jeremiah 5.1, if I can find one honest person, I will forgive the entire city. When critics say the God of the Old Testament is just this vindictive vengeful, cruel bully. I sometimes want to hold up my Bible and say, what Old Testament are you reading? The reverse standard version? That is not the Old Testament I read. Since I was a teenager, I have come across these stories and marked them with little notations. God's patience, God's mercy, and it's over and over and over. Now, having said that, let us, let us take up the accusation about these so-called Canaanite genocides. Because it is, a, it is a legitimate question. You may say, well, what, what was that? Well, you got to fast forward in, in biblical history to the time of Joshua. When God said, I want you to take the people into the promised land. And I'm going to give you this land. Now at that time that Israel entered Canaan, the, the promised land, there were all these city-states populated by different ethnic groups and tribes. There was a lot of brutal warfare going on. And God promised he would give all the property and that the Hebrews needed to drive out the people and at times exterminate them. Now, just to be clear, often the command was not, oh, just relocate all the people. You've got to be honest about what the text says. Instead, very often God said, commanded the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child and even animals among these Canaanite cities. Here's the words from Deuteronomy 20. Moses gave these instructions. As for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the property came from God. 
As for the towns of these peoples, the Lord your God is giving you, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You will annihilate them. That is a very strong Hebrew word, not used very often in the Old Testament, and it meant total destruction. And that, that's not easy to read, and it certainly over the centuries has bothered not only skeptics, it's bothered a lot of God's people. Then God names them, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hiphites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded. And it begs an answer. Okay, how do we understand these? Let me give you three things I think are, offer a biblical answer. Number one, you have to understand these were incredibly evil places. It's hard for us to even understand. I had a Hebrew professor in grad school, Dr. Walter Kaiser. And he had done, as part of his doctoral work at Brandeis University for his PhD, a study of Canaanite religion, especially, and of the practices of Canaanite religion. Because this is a PG environment, I can't even begin to recite, and he didn't even begin to recite everything in class that he discovered. Needless to say, these cultures were extremely violent bloodthirsty, pornographic, given to extreme displays of violence and torture and human sacrifice and evil and sexual perversion and demon worship. I'll leave it at that. Deuteronomy 9.4 is very clear why God ordered the extermination of a number of these cities. The Lord your God is going to drive them out because of their wickedness. And so that is part of the equation that often gets left out. One of the largest of these Canaanite cities, by the way, was Hazor. It was one of only three cities God ordered burned after all the inhabitants were killed, right down to children. If you go today to Israel, one of our favorite places to visit is Hazor because, number one, very few people go there, so it's always empty as a tourist site. And number two, today it's largely just pasture land. There is, they're starting to dig down now, and there's ruins there of Hazor. Hazor is a city of about 30,000. And imagine being commanded to go in and kill every single human being there with a sword. And, then to burn, and there is a burn layer there, by the way, archaeologically, that they have found. When we go to Hazor, which we hope to be doing next May with a group from here, when we go to Hazor and we stand there, and I read the account from Joshua about the order of destruction there, the first thing I mention when I get done reading it is I say this. The first lesson here is not the wrath of God. The first lesson of Hazor is the mercy of God because this city stood for hundreds of years as a vile, wretched place and no judgment fell on it. So Hazor as I begin to explain there, standing in that beautiful, quiet pasture land today, what is now there, I say first is a testament to the mercy of God, then to the wrath of God. And remember, God is equally glorified in both his mercy and his wrath. It's not that one he's more shy about. He's equally glorified in both. Second answer to the question is, this is not a general license for holy war like you would see in Islam. These were very specific directions given to very specific situations in a specific time. And thirdly, as I often do, I want to remind all of us, including myself, we often ask the wrong question when we come to these kind of texts. We ask, oh, how could God order this kind of horrible thing? 
That's not the real question. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, teenagers, the real question here, why does God allow any of us as rebellious, wicked sinners to exist and take breath for even another moment? That's the real question. That is the biblical question that we need to remember. That is a little bit of perspective on the Canaanite genocides. All right, God's mercy on King Ahab, chapter 21 of 1 Kings. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this one, but I want you to see the account. It's brief and it's powerful. This is a historical king, by the way, of ancient Israel. Israel split into two nations after a civil war around 1000 B.C. Lots of nations have civil wars. Lots of nations split. Israel split. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Israel on top, Judah on the bottom. This was one of the kings of Israel in the ninth century. A real king, a real historical king. This dude really existed, King Ahab. Married to one of the most wicked women on the planet. The two have made up the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. And here from verse 25 on, and just through 29, you have a clear description of how evil he was and yet his repentance and God's response. A tremendous display of God's mercy on King Ahab. Verse 25. There has never been anyone like Ahab. So I take that literally as, there's never been anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Abraham heard these words, he tore his clothes. It was a sign of repentance. Put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in this day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Another remarkable display of God's mercy. All right, let's go to another evil king, perhaps a rival, 2 Chronicles 33. Just go a few more pages in your Old Testament. Give you a moment to find it. Again, this is a historical king. This one happened to be a king of Judah, the bottom nation. Now we're 7th century B.C., so we're about 200 years more into the future after Ahab. And we have another king described as literally one of the most evil human beings to have existed in his day. The story of Manasseh is told in 2 Chronicles 33. Holds the record, by the way, as the longest reigning king of Israel or Judah, 55 years. And the list of his sins is... Legion, it's long. Murder, human sacrifice, astrology, murder, the occult, witchcraft. On and on and on it goes, all forbidden by God. He even offered his own children as human sacrifices to a pagan god. There's a commentary on him in 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Finally, God has enough. Manasseh's hauled off with a ring in his nose to Assyria. Assyria, by the way, the capital is Nineveh. When you think of Assyria today, think of ISIS. It was one of the most brutal empires ever to have existed. It's said of the Assyrians, the fear is not them capturing you and killing you. The fear is of them capturing you and what they would do to you before they killed you. They were a culture given over to vicious displays 
of torture and brutality. King Manasseh, chapter 33, I'm going to pick up in verses 10 through 13. 10 through 13. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shekels, took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly. Didn't just do a little bit. He humbled himself greatly before the Lord God of his ancestors. And then he prayed to him, and Yahweh was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew, here's his salvation, that Yahweh is God. Rest of the story, God allows him to return to Israel and he actually leads a revival. Talk about a unique and strange twist in the story. Verses 15 and 16, this is after he goes back, he got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image from the temple as well as all the altars he had built. And it goes on to describe this incredible revival. This guy was... Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, all wrapped into one. This is just an amazing display of God's mercy. All right, Psalm 136. I want to take you to the chapter. Hear this. That mentions the love of God more than any other chapter in the Bible. Psalm 136. If you need some good scripture on the love of God, you can do no better than turn to Psalm 136. Contains more mention of God's love than any single chapter in the Bible. I'm only going to read five verses just to give us a flavor. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God. His love endures forever. You have this repeated refrain. Give thanks to the Lord of Lord. His love endures forever. To him alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures forever. The great love chapter. Where is it? It's in the Old Testament. All right, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Again, some of you know your Bibles well. You know this. Some of you, you don't. I'm going to show you something here. Isaiah chapter 53, the great prophet Isaiah, one of the most powerful examples of God's love in the Old Testament is found in Isaiah 53. What is it? It's a prophecy 700 years before Christ comes, predicting exactly what he would be doing for his people. And yet it's a prophecy 700 years in advance written in the past tense. That's how certain it is. It's interesting. It's a prophecy of God offering his son as the atonement for the sins of those who would believe in him. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. I'm just going to pick up a couple verses in the middle. And I want to point out something in verse 10. So this is speaking of Jesus 700 years in advance, but putting it in the past tense, that's how certain it is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's you and me. Every one of us has gone astray and are saturated by our sin. Each of us has turned to their own way. And the Lord laid on him, that is the Father laid on the Son, the the iniquity of us all. Now if you go to verse 10, I'm going to show you something, verse 10. Because the the key here is a word used in verse 10 for guilt offering, applied to Jesus. 
Yet it was the Lord's will or it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him, crush his son. Here you have an interesting phrase for those in the prosperity gospel. Here God's saying he is delighted. He is, the word will can be translated pleasure. So either way, it's his will, it's his pleasure to crush his son and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will prolong his days. Now the word there, offering for sin or guilt offering, is just a simple Hebrew word, a psalm. It's used back in Leviticus 5, places like that, speaking of a, a, a sacrifice without blemish, and then applied to Jesus. Book of Hebrews speaks of the same kind of a thing over and over again. So the gospel is that any who confess their sins and believe in Jesus as Messiah will be saved from the coming wrath. Jesus' life will be applied to them as the perfect offering. And it's hard to underscore how different this is from the world's religions. I don't know how much you know about the different world religions, but there's nothing like this in Islam. There's nothing like this in Buddhism, and there's nothing like this in Hinduism. That doesn't mean that the people in those religions aren't extremely sincere, but they are all works-based, law-based, especially Islam. You have to atone for your own sin. Only the gospel says salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by what he did on the cross alone and cannot be earned by good works. It's grace stacked up against the world's religions of works. And it's night and day. And here you have it capsulized in Isaiah. All right, one last example from the book of Jonah. Small book towards the end of the Old Testament. Jonah is sent, we're back to the Assyrian Empire, this brutal, bloodthirsty, vindictive culture. Nineveh is the capital of this whole thing. By the way, Nineveh today, the ruins, you can go online and look at them. They're near Mosul up in northern Iraq. It's interesting when the Bible mentions these places, how often they show up down the road in the sands and in the dirt as we dig around. These places really existed, and they're confirmed again and again. So he's sent to Nineveh, so he's up near Mosul, Iraq. The book opens. He's sent from uh, Israel, by the way near modern-day Tel Aviv from the port of Joppa. He's told, go to Nineveh. Over land, it's about 800 miles. And he's to go to this wicked city and preach. And he preached one of the weirdest sermons in the history of missionary preaching. We'll get to that in a second. Word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 1, son of Amity. Here's what the word of the Lord said. So he's in Israel at this point. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness, there's that theme again, has come up before me. God tells Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. I also want to underscore, this is a great missionary book, Jonah. It once again shows the great missionary heart of God. Young people, do you see that? Young people, do you see that this book highlights the great loving, missionary heart of God to send Jonah to one of the most evil cultures imaginable. And as the book of Jonah finishes up, Jonah swallowed by a giant fish, not a whale, and in spite of Nineveh's violence and their thirst for blood and violence and human sacrifice and wickedness and cruelty, God is willing to hold off his fierce anger if they'll repent and turn. And in chapter 3, verse 6, 
Here's what happened. Now, Jonah, went, we're told he went through the city, took him several days, and he preached one of the dumbest, craziest missionary sermons. It's only about five words in Hebrew. All it says is, in 40 days, you're done. Everything we know about missions and missiology and contextualization went right out the window about trying to build bridges of connection and concern and love with the peoples you sent to. Here's a guy just walking through the city going, in 40 days, you're nuked. And there's a sense of delight you sense in his voice. Chapter 3, verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes. Where have we read the next line just a minute ago? Covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And he issued this proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. This isn't to be some kind of a casual thing. He is calling the people to an absolute fast to drop into the dirt and plead with the true God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And would you please notice verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. That is an incredible display of God's mercy. And it's not isolated, as I've shown. And we haven't even hit all the different examples. Over and over and over, we see God in the Old Testament with some of the greatest stories of mercy and kindness and patience and grace and salvation. That brings us to our summons this morning. What does all of this point us to? Here it is. It can all be summarized in Jesus' preaching in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, when he said, repent and believe the gospel, or believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible offers a single unified picture of the one true God who offers forgiveness to rebellious sinners based on the sacrifice of his son paying the penalty if those sinners, if you and I will repent, turn from our sin, own our sin, and surrender and bow the knee, fall in the dust, so to speak, before the living Christ. God says that is the person. Bow the knee and I will forgive. Now, it still raises a lingering question. Some people still feel that who, who are fully committed to biblical authority feels like something changed or shifted in the New Testament. You ever thought that when it comes to God? And the answer D.A. Carson gives is, I think, masterful. Yes, something did change. Two things. In fact, number one, God's name changed from Yahweh to Jesus. And number two, there is an intensification of his love in the New Testament and an intensification of his wrath. Both God's love and wrath are ramped up in the New Testament. And if you have any doubt, go back and revisit the book of Revelation where you will read and encounter some of the most terrifying descriptions of the wrath of God imaginable. So both God's love and wrath were amped up in the New Testament. I close with a true story about 
how the Old Testament still brings people to saving faith. And I love it because it's so simple. And it really happened. It's about a 15-year-old boy. So kids, teenagers, listen up. 15-year-old boy in England in 1850 set out to go to church. Couldn't get to his normal church because it was January and it was a blizzard. So by his own description, he, I'm paraphrasing him, but this is what he said. I, I, he said, I ended up going to this little tiny chapel called a primitive Methodist chapel. He said there were only about 15 people there and the blizzard was so bad the preacher didn't even show up. So he said, I sat there and he was not saved when he walked in the door. He was cynical by his own description. And he said some layman got up and he goes on to even mock the layman to some degree and says the guy didn't seem like he could even barely read. But he got up and of all places, this guy turns to Isaiah 45, 52. And because there were no preacher, nobody else did anything, he opened to an Old Testament passage, one we didn't even look at today, Isaiah 45, verse 22, and then he preached a very simple sermon that we were told by our 15-year-old wasn't a very good sermon. But this is the verse, as this simple, humble servant of God read to the 15 people there. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. A tremendous invitation of God's love and mercy. Where? From the Old Testament. And this teenager on that morning was pierced by the conviction of sin and the love of God. His name, Charles Spurgeon. He was converted and went on to become, in his day, the most famous preacher on planet Earth. And I want to read his words as I close of what he felt like that morning as he walked home. This is from his autobiography. These are the words of a 15-year-old. As he walked home, he said, as the snow fell on me on the way home, now he's, he's, he's freshly converted to Christ. I thought every snowflake was talking with me and told of the pardon I had found for I was as white as the driven snow by the grace of God. I love that story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, young people, comes from an Old Testament passage of a God of grace and mercy. Father, we thank you of the very consistent picture of you in the Bible. We can't answer all the accusations and all the questions about why you did this or that, why you commanded this genocide or struck this person dead. But Father, we know our own heart and our own sin. We'd be horrified if our sins were put up on the big screen here this morning in front of everybody. And the real question is, why do you allow any of us to breathe one more minute and not strike us dead? Your mercy and grace are on display every day I get out of bed. Help us to look at it that way. I pray for those here this morning who don't know Christ, who are not yet forgiven, reconciled, who have never been born again. There may be a number of them. Father, may today be their day of salvation. And we thank you that you are a God, both Old and New Testament, who loves repentant sinners and brings them into fellowship and forgiveness. And we pray this joyfully and expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen.